Welcome everyone to Sport Unlocked again. Um, first thing to say is uh, apologise for my very croaky voice. Tarek um, picked up some sort of a bug, but I'm, I'm going through the pain barrier to be with you talking about the week's sports news. Yeah, well, not the only place you're going through the pain barrier, Martin. Sport might have been off last week, but you took a few blows, did you, on the on the rugby field? Yes, so last Saturday, although all football was, was postponed, um, I was persuaded to uh, play for Airborough second team rugby, despite being uh, in my 50s. <clears throat> so yes, I'm still suffering nearly a week later. And uh, I think it, I, I won't be rushing back <laughs> to, yeah, to uh, test myself again, that's for sure. Well, you know, all those ailments and you're still here, Martin, so I commend you for that. What, what have we got? What have we got this week? Well, uh, coming up later, we've got a, a chat with David Dean, the former Arsenal vice chairman, uh, a man with uh, a lot of interest in international football as well. You still see him around the block and, um, yeah, very, very good to, to have him on and some in- interesting stuff to talk about. Yeah, also, well, David's... Uh, as you said, been round the block a few times. Is is um, he? will know a bit about uh, ownership in in the Premier League. That's for sure. Of course, he he uh, sold his stake to to a foreign owner at Arsenal. There's been another one in the news this week, hasn't there? Well, I think he's always in the news, isn't he, Todd Bowley? If he's not, if it's not one thing, it's another. But yeah, he's. Uh, we'll, we'll speak to David about this as well. But um, Todd Bowley um, interviewed at a, at a conference in the United States. And um, came up with some sort of fairly radical ideas about how the Premier League could be introduced. Um, for example, having an all-stars game, North versus South, and a sort of reg- relegation tournament with like the four bottom clubs all playing off to see who goes down. Um, it's one of those things that it, it was sort of widely criticised. Yeah, everybody talked about it. Yeah, I mean, he's a... Uh, I sort of made this point on social media the other day. I mean, he's a content generating machine in himself. You know, you talk about the football and the transfer, but Todd Bowley is a one man news operation, isn't he? He's a, he's a real gift. Um, yeah, the, the biggest talking point, obviously, was that North v South All Star game. He, he suggested because he he, suge- he he talked about how in baseball um, an All Star game generates two hundred million dollars or something over. Uh, a couple of days but you know I guess it also showed his his kind of lack of understanding initially I'm sure he'll get there of the dynamics of of what's at play in football we've been talking about calendar crunches and fixture fixture crunches this week because of the postponements and uh, here we are have have a, have another game um to to add into the mix and also I guess the cultural element of it um, you saw some of the managers, didn't we, already talking about how, how you're going to fit this one. And it was kind of laughed off. But it's pro- Mike, to be fair, it's not the worst thing to have people talking publicly and offering ideas, is it? No, I think it's a very good thing. Um, I mean, I, I, you can understand whether the, the PFA, for example, thought, you know, we can't possibly fit anything else into the calendar. You know, we need to have a proper conversation about what's happening with the number of matches before we start adding more ones. But I mean, you know, it's people suggested, why not have it instead of the community shield? I thought that, you know, that's a, to me an interesting idea because um, 
Community Shields, you know, the managers don't really like it. It's 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 a traditional thing for sure, but um, I think a lot of people think it's past its sell-by date and it could do with freshening up and it could still be a charity match. And people, would, you know, if you were being selected North v South as a player, you probably would be quite keen to take part. Yeah, the, the coaches of each of those uh, teams or players who are taking part will be... Uh hoping they don't get selected, though, would they? wouldn't they? Um, you know, immediately, oh, uh, he's got a hamstring, he can't go. Yeah, well, exactly. I mean, if Fergie was still managing, there's no way any of his players would do. Lots of last-minute dropouts, for sure. The other, Martin, the other thing he, he said is that the, the, the money from a, a game like this, I mean, we're talking pie-in-the-sky stuff here, of course, but that that that's what should feed the football pyramid. I found that a bit strange as well. Like, you know, there's quite a lot of money in, in football already, but especially in the in the Premier League, richest league in the world. The, the idea that you need to do something like this in order to feed the pyramid. Um, what did you make of that? Well, I mean, there's no way they're going to get one match where we get anything like the sort of money he was talking about. Um, but there's... Obviously, there's the background to that is the there's lots of discussions going on about um, the EFL wanting more money, two hundred fifty million more. The government putting pressure on on the Premier League to provide that, and uh, that's going through the the, the the top flight clubs at the moment. They're debating how they do it, how much, who pays for it, how it's paid, you know, what other things that are needed. So you know, he probably thought this is a you know this is an idea where we could provide money for the pyramid without affecting what we already have. Yeah, he's certainly been very, very visible. And look, um, he there was a lot of, um, I guess, naivete to be expected. I know he's a billionaire and these people are supposed to be masters of the universe and all the rest of the, the, the kind of jazz that comes with these these people. But, you know, it clearly shows that he bought Chelsea in a bit of a hurry. It was a strange sale there from Roman Abramovich. Um, had, had Russia not invaded Ukraine, very likely Chelsea would, would still be in Roman Abramovich's hands. So this is a guy who's suddenly arrived here in the Premier League and he's obviously been hyper-visible. Um, but he's he's talking. <laughs> um, maybe <clears throat> some of the Chelsea fans and others will hope maybe he doesn't speak so much. But I, I've, some of it's refreshing in the sense you get all these, you get a lot of owners who buy these teams and you don't really see them at all or don't talk um, about what their plans are, what their intentions are for their for their clubs. Now, um, I guess this guy is, in his own way, describing what what he wants to do. He got into and, and what's happening. He got into the Thomas Tuchel um, affair. Why 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 they parted company with him? He, he he made some other um, strange claims as well, but um, he's public. What do you think of that? Well, it's a complete contrast. So, you know, just across London, at Stan Kroenke at Arsenal, known as Silent Stan, because he never says anything. In fact, uh, in David Dean's book, he says he, he texted him, trying to contact him after the Super League thing to try and persuade him to pull Arsenal out of it. And no reply um, at all. And uh, he said, and I think Dean writes, you know, Silent Stan lived up to his name. So it is refreshing to have somebody speaking out. Yeah, not, not even an emoji from from Stan. And I guess the the the, the Glazers also, um, obviously, they're, they're at Manchester United. They've been there since two thousand and five now. 
if ever speak or normally you see them if you do some some camera uh, some some journalist has got a microphone through a car door or something in 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 Florida or wherever it's these brief snippets with the glazers um John Henry at Liverpool perhaps a bit more vocal but not much more you you don't really hear from him or see him interviewed that that often and it made me think you know during you mentioned that the super league those guys would have loved to have Todd Bowley on board. They were desperate for a pitch man, a showman, to talk about this thing. He would have absolutely loved it, wouldn't he? He would have probably become the spokesman for both going to the Super League and then getting out of it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Chelsea actually involved this week in a sort of interesting thing around the, um, the, the build-up to the state funeral. Um, they wanted to play the national anthem before their Champions League match, as did um, Manchester City and Glasgow Rangers. And the UEFA said no, um, which I thought was an interesting thing. And anyway, Rangers completely ignored it and actually went ahead and it wasn't just the fans singing it. They actually had somebody leading the, the national anthem um, in defiance of UEFA. Oh, of course. I suppose it's no surprise it was it was Rangers given the strength of feeling for the crown there. What what was the UEFA reasoning here? What there's certain protocols for games are there, but no flexibility. Well, they said that they said they decided that they weren't going to have a Champions League anthem because they wanted to have a subdued atmosphere and they wanted it the same everywhere in the UK. Because um, then they weren't going to have the national anthem at Liverpool, for example. Um, that hadn't been requested. I think there's a sort of general thing, perhaps UEFA don't want to go down the road of lots of different countries because of the, obviously they're not just focused on, on, on the UK. Lots of different countries all you know, deciding to play national anthems at specific moments. You know, if you think there's 56 countries across Europe, you know, I imagine every year there's some leader or royalty or former political heavyweight and one of those countries dies. There would always be a reason for somebody to play a national anthem if they wanted. And perhaps they just thought, let's not open the box to this. Um, yeah, I mean, there, like you say, there is, there is a risk and it becomes political as well. Um, like you said, um, football, this enormous global platform for if you want to do, in, in this case, a national anthem to mourn the Queen, but what else could you use it for? And you, as you said, that's, that's a box you might not want to open because God knows what's going to come out of it. Um, but, but, but Rangers, I noticed, you, you said they, they had the, the anthem there and, and UEFA kind of, said, kind of ignored it, right? They, they, they ignored UEFA and UEFA ignored them. But Celtic, their fans were in um, Warsaw, I believe, playing a game against Shakhtar Donetsk, the Ukrainian team that's been exiled there for the, for the Champions League. And they had some uh, banners um, up that, I guess, uh, protested the monarchy. And I think is a, a correct way of describing what, what those were without saying what was on the banner in particular. Um, what, why, why, were they, why were they punished? Or why is there an investigation into, into them doing that? I mean... yeah. Well, I suppose it was the offensive banner, was it? It said F star, 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 the crown. Um, so it's a sort of, it's an offensive banner. I think, you know, once you start using those words or sort of suggest a sort of political motive, UEFA doesn't like politics. So I, I guess 
that's probably why they've, they've done that. But it's sort of, yeah, the last thing you want to do is to get into um, sectarian <laughs> disputes involving Celtic and Rangers. But looks like they've been dragged into this one um, without, um, not by choice, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah. And this this was always going to be um, the week where, for the best will, UEFA were always going to be dragged into into something, given given the the the, the very um, I guess strange circumstances around football matches this week. Um, they we're still and UEFA had a, a, a tricky tricky time of it over the last year or so with all the various incidents. We're still waiting for that report into what happened in the in the Champions League final um, in in Paris, of course. So a lot of sensitivity around everything. UEFA does at the moment, isn't there, Martin? That that was a a very bad day or evening for UEFA that that night in Paris. That's for sure, and I think they're still licking their wounds from that. Be interesting to see what comes out as a result of this this review. But um, there's uh, other things going on. I noticed in the um, Champions League this week um, involving Griezmann, the um, Antoine Griezmann, the Atletico Madrid and French striker, who uh, he's only been coming on off the bench after an hour of the match has gone for reasons of, um, you know, if, if he played a full match, then Atletico would have to pay uh, extra money, I think. Um, and now I think FIFPRO have got involved in this. It's a, it's a very odd situation. Again, Barcelona, who have sent, Griezmann there, one of the um, costly signing mistakes that sent them on that road to financial ruin a couple of seasons ago, uh, trying to sell the family China to recover from, um, are are in this mad legal dispute where Griezmann uh, is is used in the final half hour of of matches so as not to trigger this this. Um, 40 million euro payment it's kind of a, a, a crazy situation and uh, you mentioned fifa pro i guess they 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 has they're talking or looking to talk to fifa about what what this means in terms of their um their 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 transfer rules because they're saying you know for the player it's a it's a crazy situation that he can't he can't play um, more than more than 30 minutes at a time martin yeah, they. I think they've written to FIFA. They've said um, that this can have a, an adverse effect on a player's career if if a clubs are not potentially not fielding a player for certain matches, if a new payment then becomes due, and um, can cause serious harm to a player's career. So I think they're, they're saying that there is an argument that it actually breaches the transfer rules, Article eighteen B. So um, be interesting to see how FIFA respond to that one. Yeah, although um, you know, it's very hard to have sympathy for Barcelona though in this, given you know what they've been up to with the summer with with the treatment of some of their own players. I saw FIFA Pro were were um, watching and quietly seething at the treatment of some of the players they were trying to get out of the door um, this summer in order to, well, in order to sign other players, uh, which we've talked about before, Martin. Um, um, anything else uh, on the agenda? We, we may think um, that the the owners of, of Premier League clubs are, are under the microscope and lots of sort of controversy, but 
nothing quite like what's been happening this week in the NBA. Yeah. So in in 2021, ESPN did this um, coruscating report into the owner of um, the Phoenix Suns, a guy called Robert Sava. They 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 um they alleged a number of uh, bad practices, bad behaviour, uh, bullying, abusive abusive language in this in this report. So the NBA got an outside law firm to to look into this, and and the report was finally finally published uh, this week, and 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 a um and a punishment has been meted out to to Robert Sava. So let's just say, see what was in it. So apparently, uh, this guy he'd used the um, the the N word, racially charged, obviously racist language, uh, five times. Uh, they found, um, and they, the curious thing they said he was repeating the word that others had used, or something like this. He also uh, they also said he used demeaning language towards women, accused him of bullying, and they outlined some of these cases. So, so pretty pretty awful um, behavior over. Uh, multiple years there and um, you have to think the NBA is one of the most or seen to be one of the most progressive sports bodies because well more than 75% of its players are black Um, and that's that's really really um, a big big part of this and a lot of them are a lot of the players um, have become I guess social justice um, advocates in their own right as well so what did the NBA do, Martin? They gave this wealthy, wealthy man a ten million dollar fine and a one-year ban, and uh, yeah, it hasn't been met very kindly by by the players. No, I think um, LeBron James um, spoken out about it, and also the Phoenix Suns player Chris Paul, um, saying that the sanctions, you know, fell short in what they we all agree was atrocious behaviour. <laughs> It, it. I thought the NBA's statement was really strange in that it, it said, you know, he's using these horrible words, um, but that he that they he said that, that he was spared harsher punishment because it it wasn't motivated by racial animus. So I mean, it is just just weird. Yeah. Well, they, yeah. They said he's not he's not a, a racist. I suppose as a, because if you remember, I don't know if you remember this a few years ago. These um, text messages or voicemails. I think it was a voicemail from a guy called Donald Sterling. He used to own um, the Clippers in LA, um, and he, he sent this message to his wife, um, and it was racist about who she was fraternising with at, at these um, LA Clippers games. And um, the the NBA gave him a life ban, and he, he ended up um, his wife ended up selling the the the, the, the team, which is now. I think owned by Steve Ballmer from yeah, Microsoft billionaire, but but again, so that, so so that 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 was the difference. As you said, they they seem to say he's not racist, so they've kind of let him off, and, and this guy was, and and to, to to the point of power as well, Martin. There was um, this episode at a press conference where a journalist asked who the rules are for. I think everybody in this room would agree that if any of us had said or done even a small percentage of the things that Robert Sarver has been shown to have said and done, we would be fired. And I assume that anybody working at Olympic Tower, if they had done even a percentage of that, would be fired. And anybody who worked for any of your 30 teams would easily be fired. Why would there be a different standard, understanding the complications of removing an owner, 
why should there be a different standard for the owner of an NBA team than there would be for everybody who works in this league? Fair question. I don't want to say you, you alluded to it, Howard, that there are particular rights here of someone who owns an NBA team as, to some, as opposed to somebody who is an employee. I, I, the equivalent of a $10 million fine and a one-year suspension, I don't know how to measure that against a job, but I have certain authority by virtue of this organization and that's what I exercised. Um, I don't have the right to take away his team. I don't want to rest on that neat legal point because, of course, there could be a process to take away someone's team in this league. It's very involved. And I ultimately made the decision that it didn't rise to that level. But to me, the consequences are severe here on Mr. Sarver. Reputationally, it's hard to even make those comparisons to somebody who commits an inappropriate act in the workplace in somewhat of an anonymous fashion versus what is a, a huge public issue now ar around this person. So the, there's no neat answer here. I mean, it's other, other than owning property, the rights that come with, with, with owning an NBA team, um, you know, how that's set up within our constitution, um, what it would take to Remove that team, you know, from his control is a very involved process, and it's different than holding a job. It just is when, when, when you actually um, own a, a team. It's, a, it's, it's just a very different proposition. That's a, a very good, very good question, wasn't it? Um, it I mean, it, it does strike you that, you know, we've had this thing with, with Sterling before, as you, as you mentioned, now there's Salva. And I think there's been you know similar things uh, other people as well, which is which has happened in the NBA. It does make it very strange that you think, as you say, a, a sport where seventy five percent of the of the players are black, and yet the people who own these franchises seem to be, um, uh, if if not outrightly racist, then certainly um, using the sort of language which is be completely unacceptable um I, I you know i just don't think you know I, yeah, I mean i think it was a long time ago but i think um 1993 this then owner of cincinnati reds mild shot she was suspended for a year for making racially offensive remarks so it's um yeah it's not a it's not a great look for the nba that's for sure no, what did you think? You know, Adam Silver said, "Look, he it's dif it's different because he's the owner. He owns it's his property. This team. That's why you know it's, it becomes fiendishly complicated." Do, do you think uh, you know this idea that owners would get a, 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 a I guess a a freer pass when it comes to something like this? And if it was a player, they'd be out the door like a shot or, a, or an executive because they own this property. Um, they 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 they're able to get away with it. Is is kind of what what Adam Silver was was suggesting. He said he found it all abhorrent and nasty and awful. But there's only so far he could go. If you're if you're an owner, you're immensely powerful, immensely wealthy, and um, I guess the NBA has slightly got one of their hands tied behind their backs. Well, we had it with the Premier League, didn't we? First time ever, and I suppose it was after the uh, Lord Mayor show 
uh, with Roman Abramovich, the government had already said he can't own any property in the UK and and he'd been sanctioned and all the rest of it. And the Premier League then, uh, a few days later, I think, wasn't it, Martin, said, yes, he's now banned from being a director of a Premier League club and he has to... He has to, um, you know, relinquish his 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 property, his club Chelsea, which was already in train. Um, but that that's the Premier League rule. It was the first time uh, the Premier League used that power to, to to tell to tell an owner that he can't own a team anymore. So here, I suppose it can be done sometimes, depending on on, on broader circumstances. Yeah, I mean, I, I do think if it happened in the Premier League, say a Premier League owner did the same thing. I think there would be massive pressure on them to, to to relinquish their stake in the club. I do. I, I think the NBA thing will rumble on as well. I, I think I think that in terms of pressure, it's not. I don't. It feels like it's not a two day story. This, you know, the, the, these players are, as I said, very 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 um, impassioned advocates of of um, anti racism and. and social justice i can't imagine they're gonna take this you know lying down say okay well the nba has opined on this let's move on and play ball um i I think this might run and run something that we will we'll keep an eye on obviously and with us today on sport unlocked very pleased that we've got david dean um david the former vice chairman of arsenal for a long time and the Football Association, and now still a, an ambassador for English football for both the, the FA and the Premier League. And um, David, the man who perhaps more than any led the formation of the Premier League in the first place, and still very active, and he has now um, written all about it in, in a new book. Welcome, David. Um, what's the title of your book? It's called Calling the Shots. How to Win in Football and Life. I've read some of it. Um, and actually, when, when we first met was um, about more than 20 years ago at a, at a football conference um, down in the south of France. Um, and um, Roman Abramovich had just taken over at Chelsea. And you, you came up with a, a memorable, memorable line in your speech the conference, um, which you reference in your book about um, that he, he'd parked his tank on the lawn and it's firing 50 pound notes i think i mean that got a lot of pick up at the time yeah and obviously proved very prescient um what what how do you think looking back now abramovich changed english football well he did uh because he sort of changed the dynamics with his firepower his spending power for both transfers and salaries and uh, well it's no secret that Chelsea were in dire trouble before he came in uh, they were they could have gone into administration he actually saved them and uh, of course transformed them when you consider uh, I know he's been criticized over the politics recently but you know he put over two billion pounds into Chelsea never took a penny out and brought them endless trophies. So I think that uh, Chelsea fans can only say thank you to him. David, could you see a direct correlation between the rise of Abramovich and, I guess, Arsenal falling away? Because around that time, there was this great stadium project. 
moving to the Emirates and football until Abramovich, the money was from within the industry, really. There wasn't this great outlier billionaire. Arsenal were with Man United competing and then they kind of fell away as Abramovich arrived. Is, is, there, is there a link at all between those two events? Well, there's clearly a link between how much clubs spend on salaries and where they finish in the league. I mean, it's not, it's not a perfect science, but if you have a look at the Deloitte reports, they will show you that the clubs who spend the most money, by and large, uh, do finish higher on the table than those that don't, because they simply get the better talent. So that's not rocket science. Yeah, but, but the, the reason I ask is Arsenal were, were, were kind of all set. They'd moved into this shiny stadium. If I remember correctly, they had some cash on the balance uh, sheet as well. And then suddenly overnight, the, 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 the value of transfers and, and salaries, as you said, go up. If, if there's no, it just changed football so kind of fundamentally in that, on that level, didn't it? Yes, it, yes, it did. Um, and one of the great, I, I suppose, assets of ours, of Arsene, particularly as an individual, was that he managed to juggle with the club's finances so well that despite being strapped for cash, which we were, when we were going to the new stadium, when we were shipping on debt of something like 450 million. And as I said in the book, you know, that gave us a lot of problems and created a lot of tension on the board um, because we didn't have a muscular financial player like Roman behind us. And that's why I was very keen to, to search for something so we didn't get left behind. You know, I, I always wanted to make sure that we were, we could compete with the best. They've got a new owner, Todd Bowley. He's come in. They've got they've got issues over their stadium. And, but also he's kind of going public with a lot of sort of ideas. There's this idea of all star game or a relegation tournament. What do you think of what do you think about those and generally how it's looking for Tom? I, I, I'm not in favour of an all star game at all. Um, and I appreciate Todd. I've met him a few times. He's obviously very, very ambitious. He wants to, you know, and America by by and large are, when it comes to anything to do with marketing, when you look at Apple or Amazon or Coca-Cola, you know, that they're always, they're right up, right up the front. So anything to do with marketing, you've got to, you've got to respect what America do. Um, but I think that his ideas at the moment just are a little bit premature. I don't think that they uh, they can work because the first thing is my, my starting point is that every game must be meaningful. I think people are paying good money; they want to see a competitive game. And the 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 second aspect is that the calendar, as we all know, is so cramped that where you're going to fit them in, where you're going to get the best players to play, there's already a tremendous strain on on the players. Putting in extra games which are not meaningful, I don't think there's a place in the calendar for them. And um, I, you know, I'm a great believer that there should have been 18 clubs in the Premier League right from the onset. That was part of our our, our, our mantra when we when we started it with the FA. Unfortunately, um, it fell away after we went down to 20 clubs. It should have gone to 18, and it didn't. And I think there was a mistake made there. The FA should have been stronger at the time to enforce that. And now you see France are going down to 18, Germany gone to 18. You know, I think we have to look at that again. I, I'm a great believer that that's, that is the way forward to allow us to have a little bit of extra time, particularly for 
in a proper mid-season break. Uh, so putting in extra games, um, I don't think is is uh, can work at the moment. It's interesting uh, this moment. Like you're you're talking about eighteen games. We had efforts for a Super League um, last year in April. Uh, there's this, you know, FIFA were talking about um, biennial World Cups. It feels like football's at this moment where things might change fundamentally or not. It's you know there are the, this feels like uh, a, a big moment. Do you do you get that sense as well? Because the Premier League also is so much more successful financially than all those other leagues in Europe. You know, it's in a league of its own really financially. Do you think yeah. they'll have to come up with something? And I think that may have been one of the agendas of the Super League is to slow our league down. And I'm very much against that. You know, I used the word, word abhorrent when it came out in the first place. I'm very much against the Super League. There is a Super League and that is the Champions League. You finish in the top four after 38 games, right? Then you go into the Champions League. So you get, if you like, the cream of all the best leagues in Europe playing in the Champions League. Uh, the thought of catapulting uh, a dozen or so clubs or maybe more into a sterile league without promotion and relegation, without any meritocracy, to me is obscene. On a, a different note, the um, you were involved in the England's 2018 World Cup bid um, heavily and obviously you know heavily consulted, I'm sure, about the possible bid for 2030 or Euro 2028. Um, you say in your in your book you you're quite disappointed that the, um, the decision was taken not to go for the 2030 World Cup. Do you think perhaps that should have gone ahead, or do you understand why it didn't? Yeah, well, I mean, when you consider um, if we were to bid for the uh, the World Cup in 2030, that that would be 64 years since we've hosted it as a major footballing country. And I still maintain, I believe we have the best stadia in the world collectively. I think we have the best transport. I think by and large, I know we're going to talk about the, the European final, which uh, didn't do us any favours, the men's final. Um, uh, but overall, I think we it, it's too long since we've hosted a World Cup. And I, I'd like, and I was there in 66, and I know what that meant to the country. And I, I was always championing the cause for us to bid for the 2030, but the, the FA, in their wisdom, thought that, I guess, the low-hanging fruit, the easier option, was to go for the Euros in 2028, which they'll probably now get unopposed, because certainly Russia will get a bid and they've dropped out to only leaves Turkey. And I think Turkey will probably now bid for 2032. So it's quite possible that England will get the Euros uh, unopposed, uh, which is fine. But nevertheless, the Euros is not the World Cup. And uh, certainly I would have liked to have seen us bidding. And I think we should have had a good chance. You, you say you say a good chance, but, but you've been involved in a FIFA bid, of course. FIFA has changed. The 2018 World Cup bid was at a different time and a different process. But it's part of it, that, that whole bidding to FIFA to get something, where bids at that time certainly were not uh, met on their, on their quality as football bids it was it was all this other stuff involved do you think there's a trust deficit by people who are bidding like will the best bid win well it's a different ball game you know that Tarragon martin you you follow the foot you too particularly have followed 
what I call international politics, probably closer than any other of your colleagues in, in, uh, in, the, in, the, in the press. Uh, I always see you at all of the, the major conferences having to do with, uh, with FIFA or UEFA. And now it is a different game entirely because there's 211 countries who've, been, who, who've got the right to vote, not just 24. And in fact, 24 members, it was 24 of the executive members, which got whittled down to 22. So it's not 22 people having the right, it's now 211. So you've got far more chance of a democratic vote. And I do think people out of, uh, when you're talking about 211, they will look very carefully at the economic study uh, of, of everything and the financial study. And when it comes to the financials of the World Cup bid, I think we stand up there probably second only to America. Whereas America will gross in the 2026 World Cup with their sharing, as you know, with, uh, with Mexico and Canada, they will probably grow, grow in excess of $10 billion. I think were we to host the World Cup, we won't be far short of that. Mm -hmm. And a lot more than what's going to happen now in, in Qatar, which may be three or four billion. I think we could double that in England. So I think if you're looking at, when you talk about legacy and what it means to the rest of the world, and money has to come into it, and you're looking at the economics of it, I think our bid would be that, that would be pretty potent when it comes to the financials. Speaking of money, um, in your book, uh, it's uh, it's um, quite an engrossing read, especially for people who um, you know are, you know of our of our age as well, because we that, that period before the the Premier League and and um, then the start of the Premier League. And there's one episode um, wasn't wasn't a particularly nice episode as you've you've described as well the the, the bung affair uh, with George Graham and the Norwegian agent Rene Hauger. And you 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 talked about this, and something that struck me in, in it. You, this you wanted to keep it. It was it was toxic, wasn't it? You wanted, but you wanted to keep it within football, and and dealt with by the Premier League. Um, and I guess you know now we're we're talking about whether football is able to regulate itself. Um, there's been so many episodes since uh, that one. Is it? What's your view on an independent regulator now? I, I see. I see that episode then. Now. Frankly, I'm always loath to see the government get involved in football. Um, I'd like to think that football can, can can steer its own ship, and I think we have we should the regulator should really be the FA. I think the FA have to have a say. They are the governing body. They're looking after I don't know forty thousand clubs, including Sunday morning teams, and I think it should be really uh, the, the FA must have a. A seat at that table, if there is going to be an independent regulator. Uh, unfortunately, it's, it's got a tailwind now because it looks, particularly after the Super League debacle. So I think there is there is perhaps more of a a play now to get uh, an independent regulator in. Um, I, I just like to see the FA have have a major say in, in that. I think it'll be a shame for that. David, uh, you, you, as well as your domestic roles, you, you were also president of G14, I think, uh, at one point. That was a sort of European, the, the precursor to the European Club Association, perhaps you could say. Um, well, that had a, a big influence over the sort of future of um, you know, how European football was organised at club level. What, what do you think of this new 
model of the Champions League that we're going to have from 2024 with this um, 30, 36 teams in a single league and this Swiss model. Yeah. The only thing that bothers me is just adding more games into the calendar, Martin, because I don't, you know, you know it, it's cluttered enough as it is, which is another reason to go down to 18. But every time there's a gap in the calendar, somebody wants to play for more, more matches. So I think that's, that's the first issue about it all. Um, uh, but, you know, you've, you've got to complement UEFA in one way, is that they've now got a very, they've got a big product there in, in the Champions League. It's very exciting. Um, so we'll have to see how it goes with the new ideas. You know, nothing stands still. Everybody's looking. How do you, how do you, how do you raise more money? How do you, how do you promote the game better? And Todd Bowley, whatever you may think, his idea may be a little bit premature today, but who knows what can happen in five or ten years' time? Um, so I'm just worried also about about the players. I think they've got to be brought into the equation in all this. I think the PFA does to have does have to have a view on their players. How many get, what is the optimum amount of games a player can play? Because the game is faster, they've got to be fitter than ever before. You know, and, and what does the public want? Does the public want to keep on paying good money? Um, and it, that's why it's got to be for, uh, for, for, for important fixtures. You don't, you don't have meaningless games. David, to, to go back a little bit, your, your, again, the book into, into your uh, departure from Arsenal in 2007, that, that was clearly and has been we've spoken about very painful for, for you given your I mean you're a fan first of all aren't you so just oh. just to just to go into that period a little bit it seems Nina Bracewell Smith one of the other shareholders at the time held a um, quite a big sway in, in what happened was was this an attempt i guess two factions there there was what you were trying to do and what the maybe the the old guard or the 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 the, um, the Etonians were, were doing at the time, and w- what was that moment like? If you had Nina on side, was there a moment where Nina would have been on side and you would have stayed and you guys would have done what you, you probably had in mind to do? Well, it's it's academic, Tarek, because it didn't happen and um, it was what I call brutal at the time after twenty four years at the club. And I thought I'd put a significant brick in the wall and to be all over in four minutes, of course, that hurt dramatically as far as Nina was concerned, where she was, she had a similar shareholding to mine. Um, so her shareholding in the end was important because it tipped the balance in favour of Stan Kroenke, but that was her decision uh, what to do then. Um, and I mean, that, and that, I, you know, I made that point very clear. It did seem strange to me that, that the board criticised me for courting Stan Kroenke Meanwhile, in the end, they all sold their shares to. Them. Yeah, yeah. What was the phrase? We we don't want, we don't want that type, and we don't want his money or something like that. If I, yeah. if I remember right. You, you you can say that, but I, I won't stress the point. But that's, yeah, that, that's where it is. So so the answer is we we will never know. It's you know it's academic now. But what could have happened? What should have happened? It it did. Um, the first thing Kroenke did, who you may remember, was to buy 9.9% of the shares, which he bought the Granada shares. And my shares, in any event, whoever I sold to, was never going to tip the balance. It was only 15%. It wouldn't give anybody any, anybody any control. David, what, what do you think about the, the fact that so many of the, the top clubs now are, and not just the top clubs, but seem to be owned by Americans? Um, yeah. You know, with the Glazers, FSG, they were sort of, 
the leaders of the Super League breakaway. Stan Kroenke obviously was also part of it. I mean, do you, is there a worry that they don't really understand what it, what English football means? Well, that, well, don't forget that their model, as we all know, is different to ours. You know, that in the MLS there is no promotion, relegation, and ever draft system. So, wholly, it's a it's a different culture. You can't compare what goes on in the states to what happens here, and that's why they've got to learn pretty quickly. And I think they made a fundamental mistake with the Super League. I mean, that, that they didn't read the tea leaves well there at all. They got it all wrong with the fans, with the press with the government, you know, Boris Johnson's famous, famous phrase when he said they're going to drop a legislative bomb on them. On them. I mean, that, that was that was good. So let me just close the door here a minute. Um, uh, yeah, so, uh, but you, you know, whether, whether it's, whether it's Americans or anybody else buying, I mean, football clubs, like any business, if the shares are on the market, anybody can buy them, provided they pass them in the proper person test. And one, one thing you do know when you've got an American buyer coming in, the likelihood is they will know something about marketing and they will try and drive it forward. They are very ambitious because that's the nature. They are natural winners. They want to see a game. They don't like draws. They want to see a game come to an end right after the after the 90 minutes, wherever it is. Right? They want a result. Um, yeah. So I'm, I'm not surprised that, you know, the, that there are so many American owners. And I think by and large, and when you have a look at the MLS, every club in the MLS is owned by a billionaire. And that may well, that may soon be the case here. So they probably, and they don't get, I mean, they, okay, maybe United take dividends as the Glazers have in the past, but certainly nobody, and you, you know, you, you look at the owners today, they're not taking personal dividends out of the club. No, David, so you, you, you're a businessman first, you know, your career in commodities, et cetera. So you're the ideal person to, to, to ask here. I mean, I looked at that Chelsea sale. Um, obviously, it was a distress sale with the, with a with a man being forced to 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 give up his 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 club. This was a business that was losing in the era of Roman Abramovich about a million dollars a week, and yet th- this price tag was more than for any sports team sold on the planet. Two point five billion pounds for for a club that loses a million a week that also needs to build a stadium. And and there isn't this guaranteed profit, as as you know, there, there isn't this closed system. How, how do you, do you understand that price tag? And would you be able to explain it, Tarek? It's the old story that um, uh, prices were a value of anything is worth what somebody's prepared to pay for it. I mean, it's like a, a painting or something. If it's rare, the people will pay up the odds. I mean, you go to an auction. People get carried away. They keep putting up their hands, and the next thing is it gets outbid, and people lose value. They just want the trophy, and I think that's what happened in the case here. And good luck to the merchant bankers in America. They did a brilliant job in massaging the price up. Is it worth it? Uh, probably not in today's world, but who knows what's going to happen in five or ten years' time? You know, with television rights, with the way technology is going, mobile phones and things. Television, television will drive it, whatever happens. Travel, television is the biggest driving force in football, as we know. Uh, clearly, they think maybe the, the value will go up. So they didn't mind overpaying today because they thought five, ten years down the road. 
it will be worth that sort of money. I'm not sure they'll get It's only worth it when somebody buys it. Exactly. Uh, David, are you, you're going to go to Qatar for the World Cup, are you? I will be there probably with you guys. I'll be there for that duration for the whole of the, the month. You won't need your uh, your jet to fly to different venues this time? No. no I, I need a car with plenty of petrol in it. Or, Are you going to try and do three matches in a day? Well, you know, I've been working that out, Martin. I'm not sure you'll be able to do three matches with the traffic congestion. I think you'll probably get two in to be safe. Uh, I've done a very careful analysis of all the games. It's going to be a struggle to get three matches done in a day. And people think it's possible with the schedule, but unless you get out right on time before the traffic and manage to beat the traffic to the other end of the next stadium, I think that will be a challenge. And, you know, people are underestimating the, the, the significant problems I think will be caused by, by the traffic. And I hope I was there for the Arab Cup in November. And even then, on a sort of, on, on an easier competition in many respects, there were traffic problems and there were signage problems, um, but they're going to learn from that to get it mm, right. Interesting. I think we can wrap it up there. Um, been tremendous to have you on, David. So, Tarek, conclusion to a case that um, we, and particularly you, have been following for some months now, um, which is the effort by Chile to get Ecuador excluded from the World Cup over the case of an allegedly ineligible player. This has been kicked out by FIFA's appeal committee. Yeah, um, not not so fast in terms of thinking this thing is over because the way Chile have gone about it, they're, they're going to the ends of the earth to make sure they're in the World Cup. There's one more uh, uh, appeal here possible at, at the Court of Arbitration for Sport. But but the story is a, is a bizarre one. Um, to go back, Chile filed a claim at um, FIFA to say that this player on, on the Ecuadorian team, Byron Castillo, was in fact Colombian. And they had the proof to show it that he was not Ecuadorian as claimed. And therefore, Ecuador should have all the games, seven games in which Castillo played in the South American qualifiers, forfeited, which would, drumroll, place Chile, who I think finished seventh of the 10 teams, shoot them up to the last uh, place for automatic qualification, the fourth place Ecuador had. So we've been through all these. They had a, they took it to FIFA. FIFA threw it out um, earlier this summer. And now this week, this FIFA appeals panel, I think as expected, um, have have sided with, with their own disciplinary committee. So as it stands, Ecuador and um, Qatar will be playing the opening game of the World Cup on November the 20th. But Zeke, what a strange story, eh? I mean, we, we don't know how old. I think the guy himself has said he might have been born in, in Ecuador and he might not be 23, but 26. Uh, but it, but this is what's happened. Yeah, I mean, he, he, has, he has confirmed. In fact, some, four years ago, he confirmed that he, um, to a, a sort of government, Ecuador government inquiry into sort of these sort of false passports, that he was born in Colombia as an illegal immigrant as a kid, effectively, was a, a, a youth player but I mean he's been there that was 10 years ago when he first went to Ecuador so 
um, Ecuador, they didn't wait until he had like an official passport before they played him in any World Cup qualifiers. So I always expected that they were going to win this one. And uh, and Chile and, and Peru, who could also have stood to gain, um, would, would lose. But yeah, you're right. I think this could go to Cass for an outcome. You, you know, you think... know, you know, you know. Though with the, with the proximity to the World Cup as well, I, I just think the 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 idea of changing a qualifier at such last minute. I mean, obviously, football has known things like this happen. Denmark famously were on the beach in in 1992, and then because of the war in Yugoslavia, former Yugoslavia, ended up not only playing in the tournament, winning Euro '92. It's possible, but you know, no one, no, none of the organisers probably want to make this change. So I'm sure um, FIFA will will have, uh, you know, even if they may put the thumb on the scale in some way to make sure this thing goes away. Yeah, well, it's for sure. You, you, the last thing FIFA would have wanted was to try and deal with a, a, a replacement at very short notice. All the you know, tickets have been sold for the match. They've already moved the match, the opening match involving Ecuador forward 24 hours. So that, that's bad enough without actually kicking them out of the tournament as far as the fans are concerned. Yeah, it's a good so point, actually. You, you'd think, you know, Ecuador obviously did FIFA a favour by, by agreeing to that. Uh, change. It means, you know, we've said this before, the, this tournament, the, the teams playing in it only have seven days preparation time anyway because of the, the late ending of, of the European season there in order to fit the World Cup in. Ecuador would only have six. You know, Qatar on a five-month you know, training camp. Um, so Ecuador, you could argue, did FIFA a solid already. Yeah, that's for sure. That's, um, not, that's probably why they agreed to it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there's been a sort of development in the Manchester City um, shareholdings this week, I think, Tarek. Silver Lake, the the West Coast US tech investment firm, has um, already owned a, 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 a stake of more than 10%, I think, in City, um, has bought another, another, I think, another 4.5%. Of of the club, um, the, the 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 initial purchase, the club were were, um, and this isn't the City Football Group, so that constellation of teams, but really is Man City being the the, the lion's share of this. Of course, New York City and a couple of others valued Man the, this whole Man City Football Group at at something north of four billion or something like that, and I think that was one of the reasons to do this. But Martin, there are. Ever as ever with Manchester City, I suppose. Um, perhaps further things to dig into here. There are some some relationships that might point to why some of this might happen. Yeah, so Silver Lake itself, um, one of its biggest shareholders is is the Abu Dhabi United Group. I think is that right? Uh, I think, yeah, it's uh, it's Mubadala, the, the the Abu Dhabi um, sovereign wealth fund. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, if uh, that is controlled by Sheikh Mansour, the the well, owner it's, of controlled, City. it's controlled by the royal family, and and the yeah. chairman is the same as the Man City chairman, I think. Um, that's, yeah, that's uh, right. Yeah, I think that's so. That's, so it almost seems a bit like you know, it's just shuffling things around. I mean, does it? Do you think it may, is it anything significant in terms of what's going to happen to Manchester City's income or investment, or is it just? Uh, 
<laughs> is it just something to, to do on paper? It's strange. Not sure, Man City's finances always, you know, uh, interesting and um, have been, I guess, interesting and controversial. It's fair to say over the over the piece since since um, the takeover in two thousand and eight. They've been, you know, freewheeling spending those sponsorship deals, all the rest of it. It's um, they they uh, they. There's always some type of manoeuvring, some type of engineering going on with Man City in order to give um, Pep Guardiola the best chance of of creating this this kind of winning machine, which he's done a, an incredible job at doing. Um, here's a, here's another here's another example of, of 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 something that we might want to dig into a bit more in detail, whether we ever get to the bottom of, of why a lot of this happens remains to be seen. But um yeah, Man City is a major force in European football. Silver Lake is 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 a large investment fund. They've got this relationship. Um Silver Lake also of investing in other sports. I think they bought um a bit of the All Blacks, I think, um the rugby team. So, you know, on a, on the other side you've got another example of Private equity buying into into sport. We've seen that as a pattern develop over the last couple of years too. Yeah, I mean, I think two hundred million uh, New Zealand dollars they, they put into um, to, to buy the All Blacks. It's like a, about a hundred million pounds. That's an, an interesting thing for for rugby for sure, especially as the All Blacks are not going through a very good patch themselves on the field, but. In, certainly, in terms of rugby, there's no there's no bigger brand, is there? That's for sure. No, in in, in global sport, I mean, I think feel like that all black brand is almost known outside of the sport. Even if you're not a rugby fan, you see, it's one of those uh, one of those iconic brands that I guess people who probably never watched a rugby game in their life would would recognise. So, so yeah, one of those totemic sports institutions. Um, away from money, Ziggs, uh, been a development in another story as well. Um, this is a strange one, uh, aren't they all? But um, a year ago or so, there was a story of the the French female footballer, Kira Amraoui, who was playing for Paris Saint-Germain, driving in a car with her teammate, a couple of teammates, Um and the car being stopped in the middle of the street after this dinner, Amrawi being dragged out by these men and being bashed with an iron bar in her in her legs. It's a crazy story. Um, and it got even crazier when her teammate, the woman driving the car, Aminato Diallo, was was arrested by by police a, a week or so later and questioned for forty or so hours. She's always maintained her her innocence, but it was created that Tonya Harding, Nancy Kerrigan storyline and and went all around the world, ruined the careers of all of these women in, in, in some way, um, especially Aminata Diallo, who was who was eventually released and she's maintained her innocence. But um, this week, some developments, almost a year later, um, three men were arrested on on, on Wednesday and according to French reports, on Friday morning, Diallo, Amraoui's teammate, 
um, was taken in for further questioning by police in Versailles. I mean, this is an absolute crazy story, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, as you say, if the, the idea that um, a sort of rival for your place is um, in any way involved in trying to sort of injure a, t- a teammate, that would just be, as you say, like the, 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 the Tonya Harding story, that would just which is made into a film. This, this is all the makings of that, doesn't it, if this is going to happen? Funny you should say that. I was talking to people about this this week, and um, I think uh, both players, even the lawyers, have been have been uh, uh, getting these inquiries from 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 talent agencies and um, film producers around the world, looking to already make this uh, this into into a movie because it has this kind of you know cinematic uh, crazy storyline, this plot that you couldn't make up. Um, but but we still haven't got. An ending yet? Just another development this week. Um, you can see why the filmmakers will be into it, couldn't you? Yeah, for sure. And it's all happening in Paris, is because um, Paul Pogba's older brother has been um, arrested um, with on suspicion of or for questioning on claims that he he sort of was part of a plot to kidnap his brother and extort money from him. Um, so this is actually a, a sort of formal legal complaint filed by um, Pogba and uh, basically saying that a group of men be trying to extort money out of like protection money, basically, and that his brother was involved in them. Um, and he's already been forced to hand over 100,000 euros. And he's been pursued to, in Manchester. And then after he went back to Juventus, um, they've been sort of putting him under pressure there. So... Yeah, you know, that, add that to the uh, the, the film storyline. Yeah, sure. Uh, yeah, Netflix uh, office outside the uh, French Football Federation headquarters, no doubt. You know, the one one thing after another. I mean, the Pogba story. Uh, you might want to Google which doctor as well. I mean, some of the storylines that came out of that are not, not worth getting into here. But the 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 the. the, the <laughs> The reference to to witch doctors and and casting spells and all the rest of it uh, that have come out of this story just beggars belief. I think one French TV channel, even a news channel, had a a, a, a witch doctor on um, on on their news show to discuss his practices and the the the, the work involved. So again, yeah, another one with the, with the Pogba case, um, which will which will which will um, continue for several months. However, Pogba, unfortunately. Uh, is himself is uh, as well as facing all this, he's got this injury, and he's, he's not going to make the World Cup. Um, so it's not been a, a, a good few months for him. Uh, Martin, I hope your own injury problems and your ailments are going to recover, and we're going to hear you in your full glory the next time we we catch up. Yes, uh, hope so, uh, Terry. <laughs>